Not many of you, no, that's not true. It was 1999. 1999. So let me think. You'd have to be at least about 10 to appreciate this movie. So how many of you were born after 1989? After 1989? Oh, I'm sorry. Children's Church, come on down front. Right here. Uh, uh, for those of you who don't know this movie really well, it, it is a, a movie about a, a, a young man. Sean Austin is in this movie. It's before he was famous for becoming, uh, you know, Frodo's uh, favorite friend, Sam, on Lord of the Rings. But Sam Austin is in, it's kind of his big, uh, first big movie here that he's in. And um, it's, it's a movie about Rudy Rudiger, which is this guy who's a lot of heart, but doesn't have the right physical makeup to be a, a player uh, in, in college football at all. He played high school, and he's just all heart, but he doesn't have a, really the body for it. And yet he wants to play for Notre Dame. And everybody's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And it, the movie's just this, it's one of those typical sports movies where, you know, uh, uh, he, he just hard work and determination, and he, he gets on the team, and he plays one play or two plays in, in his history. But he officially is in the books, and they carry him off the field and the whole thing. And it's a wonderful movie. And it is my favorite sports movie because it's the best one there is. And, <laughs> but there, there's a few scenes in this thing which are just classic moments. And I want to play you one right here, and I'm going to cut it off when it gets to the, I, I just got it off a, a website here, so it has kind of an advertisement at the end, so I'm going to cut that off. But the, uh, it, this is one of my favorite moments in the movie, and it is, uh, Rudy is, I think, a sophomore at this point or something. Dan Devine, it's his last coaching experience. He might have been a junior. I think he was a junior. And it's the last game of the year, uh, and there are... Um, uh, he's giving instructions to the team about this last game. So here's Rudy, the last game. Huddle up. Bring it in, guys. Father, everyone take a hand. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Notre Dame, our mother. Pray for us! You all know what you have to do. Remember, no one, and I mean no one comes into our house and pushes us around. This is your game now, gentlemen. And for you seniors, it's your last one, so make it count. Because you'll remember it for the rest of your lives. Let's get them. All right, that's enough of that. So, uh... <laughs> But it's this very emotional scene, and, and, and Dan Devine comes out there, and, and he says, no one, and I mean no one, comes into our house and pushes us around. 
We're going to see that today in the Gospel of Luke. you got a Bible with you. You're thinking, what? How in the world? Uh, I figured uh, it'd be better for, for you to actually see the clip than last week when I did the It's Time thing and jumped all over the stage like a maniac. So I thought I'd show you a quick clip there instead. Uh, if you got a Bible with you, open it up to Luke chapter 19. We're going to finish up Luke chapter 19 today. We're going to start uh, the first eight verses of chapter 20 in what is beginning now our last part of uh, the Gospel of Luke um, uh, which is it's what we would call Holy Week, or from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday and a little bit beyond uh, is what's happening in the last uh, few chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke 19.45, uh, let's read this here. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching, the people in the temple courts, and, excuse me, one, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will ask, a, ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So we're going to look at this and, and uh, uh, calling this message not my father's house as, well, no one comes into, G into God's house, no one, and pushes us around. So, so here we go. I want to just give a little bit of review for those of you who are maybe new, even if you're brand new to the Gospel of Luke. It's the life of Jesus. This is the final part of Jesus' earthly ministry. If you see the line there from Luke chapter the, uh, Luke 9.51, he's up there at Capernaum. He's going to go down and around, and he's keep going to go on his way. He's going to get to Jericho. Uh, in Luke 9.51, it says that he set his face, or he was re resolutely set to go all the way now to Jerusalem. It takes a while. Takes 10 chapters to get there, but he gets there. And last week we saw that we're taking this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And what has happened, and when he's in Jericho in Luke chapter 18, he tells his disciples what's going to happen when he's going forward on this last journey. And here's what's going to happen he takes his 12 disciples aside and he tells them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. So with that said, Jesus does it. Jesus does it. He knows full well that's what's going to happen. He, he predicts it. He knows it. And yet he does it. And if you're here today and you're kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever, which I know, and maybe that's where you're at, do you realize the amount of love there is just for that, that he loves you enough, that he knows what's going to happen, and yet he goes in anyway and does it. And this is what happens in what we talked about last week. 
After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So, key thing there to see is the beginning of this, where he said, after Jesus had said this, well, what he had just got done saying was this parable. The parable was to a group of people who were standing there at the time in Jericho, and he goes on to tell them a parable, and the parable tells you why. Because he's near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So they're thinking, if he's going to go to Jerusalem, boom, he's going to take over. The Romans are going to get kicked out. Israel's going to be a nation again. Here we go, okay? Now, I'm one of those guys that thinks that this particular parable has a couple implications. It has an implication for right then and there, and then it also has an implication for the future because we're still in that period of time waiting for the kingdom of God to come fully. But he meant it also for what is going to happen when he goes into Jerusalem. In fact, I would argue, and a lot of people uh, smarter and better looking than me would agree, that this is kind of the parable that sets up for the reactions that are going to take place during Holy Week. You're going to see three different kinds of reactions in this parable. First one, he says, uh, here's the, the parable. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So they each get a mina. It's a system of money. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Okay, so you got the... Here's the king, the king to be. He's not a king yet. There's these servants. He gives them each a mina. Then there's these other groups that's like, we don't want this guy. We're against him, right? He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he went for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. And he found that the servants had gained, uh, they all had uh, invested or done things with the money, except for one. So nine of them invested in it differently, and they were all given more responsibility, and they were giving, uh, given political, like, uh, political places like governors over 10 cities, one of them five cities and so on. But then there's one who just says, you know what, I was just indifferent about it. I didn't really do anything. So here's your, here's your one mina back. And, and, and Jesus takes the mina from him and gives it to the guy who had 10. And he, sa and he says, uh, there's going to be reactions here to Jesus. What are the reactions? One is, there are going to be people who are going to be very pleased about this and they're going to want to follow him. There's going to be those like the delegation that are going to reject Jesus, and then there's going to be those that are just flat out indifferent. Just, yeah, whatever. Right? Now we're going to see that over and over and over again in here. Now, when Jesus comes to the edge of the city, we saw this last week, he approaches Jerusalem, and he sees the city, and he wept over it. All right? And then he's going to say this whole thing that's kind of in gray there, but it says, uh, if you only you had known on this day what would brought you uh, peace, but it's hidden from your eyes now. And I've wanted to bring you together, but you would not let me. And we looked at last week the topography of what's going on here. And as you see, uh, it's going up as Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem, or excuse me, Jericho. I'll do it for you. Jericho to Jerusalem. He is going up 3,300 feet, <clears throat> but ultimately comes over the top of the Mount of Olives. And when you come over the top, then you see the city. I kid you not, I don't know if you, how many of you know Kean, but Kean came down for a service. He just got back from Israel. He picks out his iPhone. He goes, there's that picture. Top of the Mount of Olives. There it is. You're standing right here just about 45 minutes ago. There's this picture. I was like, oh. And there's the Kidron Valley. I'm like, oh, dude, that's awesome. So it comes over and you can just see the city. It opens up. And that's when Jesus is weeping over 
the city. Now, where we're going this week is he's actually in Jerusalem. Jesus is now in Jerusalem. Not only is he in Jerusalem, he's at the temple. The temple is ground zero. Jerusalem is a is, is very important city, but the temple is ground zero of the, the importance of the Jewish people, their culture, and, and their, their religion. All of that's right there. And now what's interesting here, I just want you to note this. What this map is with all the different, all the different uh, numbers and all the arrows and everything like that, all it's trying to do is take all the Gospels and say, what happened that last week? How did Jesus move? Where did he go? He went into the temple area during the day, and then if you read other Gospels, he comes out, and there's, there's if you're familiar with Matthew, there's talks about like a fig tree and different things going out, and there's all these different things. That's a, all those numbers, back and forth, different cities, all that kind of thing. The interesting thing about Luke, and I didn't realize it till this week, is Luke never takes you out. You go into the temple, you come in right away, Sunday, it seems to be on Sunday, and he, all you do is these accounts in the temple. He never takes you to any places. All Luke is interested in is what took place at the temple. It's very interesting. Luke is trying to teach us something about where he's taking. All right, let's get to the passage. Uh, the, the passage starts out, <clears throat> I want to look at, here, here's what I want to do today. I want to take this passage all from uh, verse 25, or 45 of chapter 19 all the way to verse 8 of chapter 20. Divide it into three things. First, let's look at the actions of Jesus. Then we'll look at the words of Jesus. And then we will look at um, how the people opposed him, especially the leaders, in a, in a thing that I'm calling religion kills. Okay, so actions, words, and then religional. Religion kills, quite literally. Okay, here we go. First thing. What are his actions? It says, when Jesus entered the temple courts. Now, I know most of us uh, are not necessarily Old Testament scholars. So uh, what, is, what is cool is here's a picture of this, a picture of the temple. You're going, well, how can that be a picture? It actually is a picture. It's a scale model of first century Jerusalem in, uh, and there's kind of a, I, I could have even gone out further, they had, pictures online. I kid you not. I was telling this to Kian. He goes, oh yeah, I got that too. And he showed, it's like, what? He went to this. I guess it's a very popular place. It's like, I don't know. He, I said, is it about maybe like a city block or so? It's about that size. So whatever scale down version that would be, uh, one to whatever. Yeah, so I don't know. But it's, it's something, you know, so the whole city is now like a city block and it has kind of a fence around it and the whole thing. And so uh, you can look out and you can see the temple. In Jerusalem, as it would have been in A.D., you know, right in 30 or the time when Jesus was there. And so if you look at uh, this particular uh, rendition of this, is what most people agree, this is the way it was, is there's the temple proper in the center, okay? And then there was this larger walled-off area, and that was called the courts, or what was known as the court of the Gentiles. And I'll come back to this in just a little bit and explain what that is. So that's where Jesus is. The, the temple itself was the main attraction, but there was outside of that, there was all these things going on, and that's what we're going to see what is happening here. So let's keep going. What does he do? He, he, he began to drive out those who were selling. Luke is very short in what describes this particular situation. Okay, he began to drive out those who were selling. And you're thinking, that doesn't sound very violent. 
You know, because the other Gospels are pretty violent. If you look at Mark, Mark writes about this, and he says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merch through the temple courts. You want to buy your T-shirts or whatever? Uh-uh, not going to let you in. He's like physically restraining them. So I mean, this is, this is Jesus who, he's, he's angry. He's flipping over tables. John writes about it. Now, I just, I didn't mention this first service because I had made a boo-boo here, but uh, it's possible this is a different deal because John puts it earlier in the gospel. Most people just think John wasn't really too concerned about chronology here, but here's his description. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So, I mean, here you get this idea and you think, Jesus with a whip, right? Or Jesus overturning tables, just infuriating. And you think, why did Luke get so, he didn't say much about it. Well, it is interesting because if you look at that phrase, he drove out. The only other thing in the gospel of Luke that ever Jesus drives out are demons, so it's kind of there. It's maybe not as, as explicit as the other two guys, but it is definitely there as well. Uh, artwork throughout the centuries have shown this, and it's uh, this one, I, I tried to do my best to get a, a light version of this, but uh, it, it doesn't come out. Jesus is actually holding a whip there, and everybody's kind of freaking out. Uh, here's one where it's, it's uh, kind of troubling. Uh, Jesus has the, this... Very wimpy-looking whip. It's probably because the canvas, he realized, oh, I have no room left for a big uh, <laughs> whip there or whatever. But I, it looks like, is that a woman? I mean, it, I don't know. It's just something. Jesus is angry, okay? This is, is sparked uh, uh, a lot of artwork throughout. This is 1655. And so uh, here's an old picture uh, but put on a modern meme, and I love this meme. If anyone ever asks you what would Jesus do, remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I saw one guy who had a bracelet. It said, what would Jesus whip? WWJW. So, uh, but, but this idea of Jesus is very angry, right? What, what, however you put it, he's driving out people in Luke. He's flipping over tables and causing people to stop in, in uh, Mark. And he's got a whip. And he's, he's at least threatening to whack people out of the way to get them. So what's he so angry about? Well, that's where we get to his words. Gets to his words. He says a couple things. First thing he says is, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. And he says, it is written. So where is that written? I want to give you this in context. So it's, I want to give you, it's found in Isaiah 56. Uh, and I want to give it to you in verses 3 through 7. So you understand exactly what's going on here. It says, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord shall, will surely exclude me from his people. Okay? Remember, this is Old Testament now. 
And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For that, this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Holy mountain being the temple mount and this house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, it's very interesting because the word nations there is the word Gentiles. My house will be called a house of prayer for the Gentiles, or for everybody. Now, you're kind of going, whoa, wait a minute here now. Uh, I thought God had a, you know, a chosen people that came through the person of Abraham. Nothing special about him. God chooses him. And this whole group of people come, and there's the people Israel. It's true. But if you look even in the temple, there's this court of the Gentiles where those who had not converted to Judaism, the circumcision thing was one of the problems. There was other ones, but that was a big one. It's like, you want me to do what? Uh, I'd like it out here, out here in the court of the Gentiles. It's just fine with me, thank you. So they, they remained there, but God is making this thing known that will become very clear then in the New Testament that all are welcome to come. No matter who you are, what nationality, what race, all are welcome. Okay, then he says to them, oh, one more thing I want to say, sorry. Um, he says, this will be a house of prayer. Now just think about this for a second. So there's this prayer that is a way, what's going to happen in the temple, in the temple courts, this is a, is a place of prayer, meaning it's a place where you can learn about and you can talk to God. The temple was designed to be a place where God resided, and those who came there were seekers of truth, seekers of God. And so when he says a house of prayer, it means a, a place where you can seek God. You can hear teaching about him. You are welcome. You can come, and you can uh, pour your heart out to God here on this, these grounds. Okay, that's what he's saying. But instead of that, uh, they've made it a den of robbers. That's also a quote from the Old Testament. Once again, I want to show you where that comes from. That comes from Jeremiah 7. And I want to read this in context too, so you kind of feel of it. He says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, just let me stop there just for a second so you go, what was that? why did he say that three times? Why did he say that three times? Why did he say that three times? So, <laughs> the, the uh, too much coffee. Uh, He's saying, don't be deceived by something. Don't think that you can just not pay attention to me at all and just say, oh, but the temple, we're good. It'd be like somebody being married and saying, you know what, I'm just not going to come home at all, but boy, we got a great marriage. Really, really, that's just great. Never, what? So look at what God is saying here about this. He's saying, really, you can just say, you think just because you have the temple and it's, it's in Israel, you think that somehow makes you okay? He says, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not, do not oppose, oppress the foreigner. Don't oppress the foreigner. 
Fascinating, huh? The fatherless or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. Wow. Uh, we're going to see it. We just read it. What happens and in, in, uh, what's going to happen then? They're trying to kill Jesus right there in the temple. Just in, in chapter 20. And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal? Uh, that'd be like equivalent to being like a Packer fan. And follow other gods. Oh, there must be a lot of Packer fans in this service. Yeah. And f- follow other gods you've not known. And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? There's the phrase. Now see, they would have known. They knew their Old Testament. When Jesus says, you made a den of robbers, they would have known. He's quoting from Jeremiah 7. Oh. Right? I see. But I've been watching I got eyes on you. I can see stuff, declares the Lord. I see this. So, what's going on here when he says it's a den of robbers? What's the problem? Is that they're doing a few things. What are they? They're not living consistently at all with a person who should be living next to the dwelling of God should live. And they're doing some things. What are the things that they're doing? They're excluding folks, right? It's supposed to be the court of the Gentiles. But they're also extorting them. They are are taking and making a profit in the name of God. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, The commercial abuse of God's house had grown out of worshippers' need to obtain unblemished animals for sacrifice and the annual requirement that every male Israelite pay a half-shekel temple tax which often necessitated changing money into the proper currency. But apparently exorbitant charges were made by the money changers. And there was also a large traffic in livestock for the sacrifices, all at the worshippers' expenses. Records exist of transactions in which 3,000 livestock were brought to the Temple Hill to be sold for offerings. In Jesus' day, the middlemen were under the control of the high priest Ananias, whom Josephus, now Josephus is a first century Jewish historian, so of, the, of that period, it's the most reliable source we have, cynically called the great procurer of money. A huge religious scam had been going on for years in the temple area, specifically in the court of the Gentiles, the only place in the temple where a non-Jew could go to pray and meditate. So much for Jewish evangelism. That word evangelism means the spreading of good news. It means allowing more people to hear about Christ. That's all that word means. And so this is what he's, what's going on there, and that's why he has been yelling at them. You have exclusion taking place, and you have extortion, making a profit off of God. And then we move on. Now what we're going to see in, uh, right up to the time that they actually do it is many attempts at trying to take Jesus' life. They're just going to try all kinds of different things. And they finally figure out one that works because Jesus lets it work, but it, 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 that's what's going to happen. And so right away here, uh, it says that uh, every, day as the te- as the, every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Okay, so at face value, it looks like here 
that they just wanted to figure out a way to kill him. And they couldn't do it, it says in verse 48, yet they couldn't find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So I'm taking it that. What, what, one of the plans here was just like, you know, there Jesus is teaching in the temple courts and this thing's getting fuller and fuller and people are listening and we could say, whoa, look back there, a baby wolf. And everybody looks and they grab Jesus, whoop, they whisk him away and they kill him. I mean, that's what it sounds like. It was that silly of a plan, but that sounds like the plan at first. That doesn't work. Plan number two. One day, oh, 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 let me say this too. Every time I bring up this word, I get emails. So uh, Tim has very graciously said that he will take these emails now. Tim, T-I-M, at HopeCC.com. Uh, and every time I say religion kills, they're like, what are you talking about? It's a church, you know. I want to make sure I, I define the word religion. And then if you still have a problem with it, go ahead and email me and uh, we'll talk. But religion, I define, okay, my definition. So it's, it's, uh, it's a postmodern world. I get the words to mean what I want them to mean. The uh, religion means that I do certain activities, certain things, religious rituals or, or, or do good things or whatever, in order to please the gods or the, or the deity, or in this case, God. And I, I just do these certain things, and then that'll make me okay with God. And if I don't do those certain things, I'm not okay with God. So all my life then, I'm trying to be religious and trying to be good so that God will now accept me, Right? And some of you are going, yeah, yeah. That's not anywhere near Christianity. That's called legalism. That's called the law. That doesn't work. The law just points at you and says you don't make it. The gospel is not that you do these things in order to get approved. The gospel says because Christ went to the cross and paid the penalty for my sin, and all I need to do is bend my knee and accept him. That's it. Trust him. That it's been done for me. I don't have to do anything. It's been done for me. And now I live. I don't live because I have to do stuff. I live because I get to do stuff. I get to follow God. I don't have to. It totally changes. Becomes a relationship like, okay, I want to please my wife. What do we do? Okay, I get flowers. That'll make me a good husband. Instead of saying, no, I'm just flat out in love. I'm looking at you, Zach. That's awkward. I'm flat out in love. <laughs> With Carol, and I just want to get her flowers, right? So I, don't, I love you too, Zach, but I ain't buying you flowers. Um, <laughs> and you're like, amen to that. Uh, okay, that's, it's a total different thing there. So that's what I mean by religion. And if that's the way you live, you can't stand people who live by grace. Because you think, well, you're not worried enough. You're not living as good as I am. And maybe they're not, maybe they are. And then you become proud and you see people not living like that. And it says, one day Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming what? The gospel. Gospel means good news. He was proclaiming this message that you can't do it, but I can. I'm Savior. I'm the light of the world. You come to me. He's proclaiming that. And guess who comes? The people who ultimately, now who killed Jesus? Great question. A lot of different, a lot of different answers to that, sure. But humanly speaking, uh, Religious, religious people killed Jesus. Chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. And they said, who gave you this authority? Now, so what's going to happen here is this is attempt number two. All of the first eight verses. They're first going to ask this question. 
Who gave you this authority? Now, that's not a question. It's a statement in question form. Remember what's going on. Jesus is teaching, and there's this whole big crowd, and they all hung on his words. Are you just, oh, wow, that's really great, right? So every word that he says, they're just amazed at what he's teaching, and so they're realizing, yeah, we can't just come out and accuse this guy. So they do it in the form of a question, kind of like Jeopardy, right? So they say, who gave you this authority? But it really is, should be stated, what right do you have to be here? Who are you? Who do you think you are? That's really, it's not really a question. Here's the deal. You see this all, in, all over the Gospels. Ask Jesus an honest an- question, get an honest answer. Ask Jesus a tricksy question, <laughs> you get a tricksy answer. So what's his answer? I'll ask you a question. Tell me John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? They thought they were pinning Jesus down because anything that that he would say, they would have an answer for, except for this. Because he puts them, he's right back at you. That's what's happening here, right back at you. So they got to think about it. They're thinking about it. What do they say? They say, they discuss it. This is just uh, verse 5 there. They discuss it among themselves and said this. First option. If we say that John's baptism, if we say that John himself, that his ministry was actually from God, from heaven, then he'll just come back and say, why don't you believe him? Right? Now, just though you're not familiar with J the B, John the Baptist, uh, If they say that he's the guy, if he's this guy, then he's the Malachi 3 guy. That's the last chapter in the Old Testament. And here's the prophecy. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And here it is, the kicker. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to where? His temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. All right? So... They could, if, G, if they say, okay, yeah, John, he's, we're good with John. We're just talking about you. <laughs> Jesus can say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Go, to, go to the old Italian prophet Malachi because he's saying, I'm the guy. And if you don't believe it there, in, in, on John's own words, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, different guy wrote it, different John, but John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and says, look, Sees Jesus and he declares about him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It's John's way of being clever. John and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. John is a little bit older than Jesus. A few months, right? You hear that in the first uh, few chapters of Luke. And so even though uh, he's, he said he was after me, but he's actually way before me. Because he was eternal. I myself did not know him. I knew him as my cousin, but I didn't know he was the son of God. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain on is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he says this, I have seen And I testify that this is God's chosen one. 
They can't say that John's baptism was from heaven, right? They say that, game, set, match. Can't do that. Second option, right? Uh, verse 6, but if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us. If you're from Colorado, that means picking up a rock and throwing it. It doesn't mean uh, what you think it means. The, the, they, will, they will throw, they'll kill us. This massive crowd, they love John because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they don't do that. What do they do? They go all politics, right? They have a nice political answer. We don't know where he was from. I, I, I don't know. Not sure where his baptism was from. And then Jesus says, right back at you. I would quote, the original Greek, if you look this up, Jesus said, how now, brown cow, is what it says. <laughs> he gets that third category. If you're going to be indifferent towards me, I'm going to be indifferent towards you. Then I'm not, not going to tell you about what authority I'm doing these things. That's it. Now, that's our passage. I want to take just a moment here and do a couple more things. First thing, I want to understand the temple. What's going on here? This is, all this is taking place in the temple. We're going to be in the temple till mid-January. Or January, excuse me, July. It starts with a J. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and and uh, what's, what's basically going on here? In the Old Testament... It, it, it started out where this, there was this dwelling with God. Moses dwelled with God. Uh, they, they, they put together a tabernacle. It's kind of this tent where the, the, the actual presence of God would be there. It travels around. When they become a nation, uh, the second king of that, excuse me, I guess his third king, uh, uh, Saul, then David, then Solomon, Solomon builds a temple. And this temple is the place where God's presence resided. Right? Of course, God is everywhere, but there's something about the temple that was supposed to be where God resided, and it was a place where people could come, and they could sacrifice animals for their sin. Oh, Jesus comes along, and he starts saying things like, uh, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. He's talking about himself, and Jesus is referring to himself as the, this temple. At Jesus' death, Something happens, all kinds of crazy cataclysmic things, but one of which is the temple curtain, that's the curtain that was in between the holy area and the holy of holies, where the very presence of God was that only once a year would the priest go in there on the day of atonement, go in there and offer sacrifices for the people of Israel. That got torn in two, this big, heavy, thick, uh, uh, you know, uh, the curtain was torn in two, and it, it symbolized something. What's that? That it's no longer in here. This is not how it's going to work now. In fact, sacrifices for sin, the Bible later tells us that those animals never really did anything at all. It was a, it was a precursor. It was a shadow to the sacrifice that Jesus would make. Then, as you keep reading your Bible, you think, okay, then there is no more temple. We don't have a temple anymore. But the Apostle Paul comes along and says this, that he's speaking to the people of Corinth, now, if you feel bad about your behavior, read First and Second Corinthians. You'll feel really good. These Corinthians were horrific. I mean, every possible thing you could think of, they were doing. 
And they become Christians. And Paul's like, okay, stop. You can't go to Saturday night orgies in the pagan temples and come to Sunday morning service. Can't do that anymore. Oh. Right? I'm serious. That's what they were doing. And Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now, don't. Don't take that, don't just gloss over that. That's saying that that same spirit that was in the Holy of Holies is now in anyone who's following Jesus. And it's as collectively, we are the temple of God. Collectively. And individually, but collectively is what Paul's trying to get across here. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred. No one, no one comes into our house and pushes us around. Right? And you together are that temple. Now, it gets even more exciting when we get to the end. Let me let Kent Hughes do it because I think he does a great job in this. His, his opponents, that's Jesus, uh, could only think of the bricks and mortar of Herod's temple, but John says he was referring to his own body and his resurrection would give the disciples the key to what he meant. So for the Apostle John, uh, the true temple of God was the bodily presence of Jesus. John explains the word of God Excuse me, the word was made flesh and lived or made his dwelling among us. That's really what a temple is. It's this dwelling with us. The literal Greek here is tabernacled among us. Jesus was the temple because he was God dwelling among us. Stephen, later in the, in the book of Acts, in the great sermon before the Sanhedrin prior to his stoning, spoke of the uh, impermanence, the not being permanent, of both the tabernacle and the temple, and then declared, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. For Paul, all believers became members of the heavenly temple by virtue of their importance in Christ. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And then, in the end, in Revelation 21, it says this, And I heard a loud voice in the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God, now the tabernacling, tabernacling, now the temple, the holy of holies of God, is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Or if you go further in that chapter to the end of chapter 21, I did not see a temple in the city, in the new heavens, in the new earth, because the Lord God Almighty and the Son are its temple, the city does not give the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. So, is there a temple? Yeah, we're a temple. Not this building. You know, if you think of the analogy, like we're a family, like I have a family and we have a house. The house doesn't define our family, but it's an important part of our family. You come to, you learn something about us. We give you the Minnesota tour. Ah, here's, you know, this, and there's a closet. Wow, isn't that fun? And we go right through, and you kind of learn about us by seeing our house. That's what this is. That's what this building is. You call it a church, it's fine. If you want to call our house the, the, the Trichler house, it's fine. But it's not really our family. Our family is the members of our family. That's us. That's people who are followers of Christ around the world. All nations, tribes, tongues. That's the temple. And it caused me this week to ask the question, what would Jesus have a whip with today? What would cause Christ, if you were here physically, there's not a physical temple, it's, it's people, but what has crept in, what has seeped its way in 
to the temple today, which is the people of God, the, where, where God resides with us, what has crept in that has caused exclusion, extortion, and religion to kill? And as I was thinking about that question, I read an article. One year ago, this Friday, the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina had its tragedy. A little bit after that, uh, July 6th, uh, Carol and I had an opportunity to go and uh, we were going through Charleston and we had a chance to see uh, this place and to see the church building and to see the outpouring of support uh, that was there. And uh, honestly, it was, it was breathtaking. There was a, a huge sign. I signed the sign somewhere. I don't know where I signed. What happened, if you're not familiar with that, and I, I know there's even a shooting last night, but what happened in this particular one is on a Wednesday night, uh, June uh, 17th, 2015, 14 people were together in this church, and they're having a Bible study, and it's a predominantly... African-American church. It's historic African-American church. And in walks a white kid. And their response to them was to this newcomer is, he seemed like someone who needed God, so we welcomed him with open arms. <clears throat> Black church. If there's a, kind of a hub of racism could potentially be Charleston. Uh, South Carolina is the last state to remove the Confederate flag. There's, there's, there's a lot of, lot of history there, a lot of racial tension there. And they let this white kid come in because he looked like he needed God. He sits through the whole study. And then he opens fire and he kills nine of the 14 people who are there, known as the Charleston Nine. So I had a chance to read this article this week. Um, I read about this, and, and it, it, it hit me that this would both has Jesus mourning and also is exactly the kind of thing that has Jesus with a whip. It's totally excluding folks. Listen to what the author of this Christianity Today article, uh, his name is... Uh, Bob, uh, I'm not sure how to say his last name, S-M-I-E-Tana, Smitana, Smitana, I'm not sure. Um, it, it says, of all the evidence in recent years that white supremacy remains imprinted on American life, the shootings were the most indisputable. A white boy of come of age in the 21st century, drinking from the same poisoned spring as lynch mobs across the country in the 20th. He had stepped into the sanctuary of a church in hopes of avenging imagined wrongs and inciting a race war. Now, what I'd like to do is I want you to meet 
two of the survivors, no, excuse me, two of the, the, the victims, two of the people that the, the were murdered, two of their surviving relatives. And I just want you to hear how the temple responded. First, I want you to meet Anthony uh, Thompson. His wife's name was Myra. Now, I just want to read from the article because it's very powerful. Anthony Thompson stands by his dining room table and hears his wife's voice for the first time in months. From a digital recorder in his hand comes the sound of Myra Thompson's first sermon given at Emmanuel AME Church during the 2014 Christmas season. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, she said, quoting from Isaiah. There are so many storms in our lives, so much strife, Anger, jealousy, disrespect. These st storms make it hard to find peace. Tell your storm to move because Jesus is coming. As Anthony listens to the recording, Myra seems to be in the room with him. Her sm smiling face appears on the wall down the hallway of their modest brick home, not far from the now iconic Charleston Strong. Somebody painted that on the on the wall, mural painted after the shooting that took Myra's life. On the dining room table is Myra's Bible. There's a picture of it. The reading from Isaiah is still marked. She's, she's, <clears throat> she's telling me to tell my storm to move. Anthony, <clears throat> a retired probation officer and pastor at Holy Trinity Reformed Episcopal Church, had helped Myra prepare the Bible study she taught at Emmanuel that fateful Wednesday night. They'd spent hours going over the text until she was satisfied. As she left for church, Anthony remembers she seemed to glow. She walked out the door before he'd said goodbye. Myra was a school teacher, reading specialist, and later a school counselor. Everything she did was for somebody else, he said. <clears throat> when Anthony... When Anthony arrived at Emmanuel after hearing the horrible news, the police wouldn't let him inside the church. Because of the investigation, Thompson wasn't able to see his wife's body for another 10 days. Even today, he has a hard time believing she is gone. She was the boss, he says. <clears throat> Fiddling with his wedding ring as he tells of their life together. On their front lawn are neatly tended gardens and a pair of white rocking chairs. Inside, fresh flowers are set on the table every week. That's what Myra wanted. Their lives were busy with church, work, and raising Myra's daughter, Denise, who called Anthony father. In recent years, they took road trips to see Denise in Atlanta, spending hours on the drive down singing along <clears throat> to Motown hits. On their most recent trip... Myra had taken Denise aside and described what she wanted for her funeral. It was, if, it was as if she knew, says Anthony. Anthony was one of the victim's families to speak at Roof's bond hearing. Dylan Roof was the young man that went in there and opened fire. He had a bond hearing, and some of the victim's families spoke to him. And Anthony was one of them. <clears throat> Here's what he said.
<clears throat> we would like you to we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. The preacher told Ruth, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most. Christ, so that he can change it. Wasn't planning on going, says Anthony, but God put it in my head. It was like he was speaking through me. Afterwards, Anthony felt peace. Today he doesn't spend much time thinking about Roof or the trial. I pray for Dylan. I pray every day that God will forgive him. <clears throat> that he will do what the Lord tells him to do, to repent and believe and live to tell about it. I want you to meet Nadine Coyer. Her mother, Ethel Lance, was also murdered. Says Nadine Coyer misses her mother's smile, so ebullient it all was almost audible. It was the smile that greeted worshipers at Emmanuel AME Church, where Ethel Lance was a lifelong member and an usher. She even misses her mom's love for caffeine-free Diet Coke. But not her biscuits, which were hard as a rock, says Coyer. <laughs> she could not bake, she says, smiling. The two talked every day, becoming closer after Coyer's sister died in 2013. Losing her mother two years later meant the grief weighs heavy. Still, Coyer's faith remained strong. She drew global acclaim as the, as the first family member to speak at Roof's bond hearing. And here's what she said. I forgive you. <clears throat> she said, you took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. If God forgives you, I will forgive you. That's what her mother would have wanted, says Collier. I know she would have said, that's my baby. I taught her well. <clears throat> I would not have it any other way. <clears throat> I was going to say, as I read that, I wept, but it's pretty obvious. <clears throat> Um, people being excluded, people being extorted by a system, a system that is extorting people and holding them down. It's exactly what's crept in. Racism has crept in. If any nation is more favored of God, it'd be the Jewish people. The rest of us are all just Gentiles. That's the only, and, and even in the Bible, talk, constantly talks about reconciling that. So as I close today, I just want to be a little more, let the Holy Spirit speak to you individually. There's a lot of things I could have mentioned that has crept into the temple, but just for you particularly, what's, what's crept into your temple that you need in a gospel, wonderful 
and yet powerful way for Christ to overturn some tables and to come with a whip. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm in awe and shook up by the fact that you did these things in the temple, that you, in fact, did come and overturn tables and were rough with people and perhaps even used this, these cords with a whip on folks. But God, would that not just be something that we hear and that it doesn't cause us to to be different, but it'd be something that we'd hear and, and realize there are things that have crept into our temple too that need just as radical of a, of a change. And so by the, not out of shame and not to become something to please you, but because we already please you in the gospel, would you come and do that even in this room? Even as we sing this last song, God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, work in us? And Lord, if there are folks here this morning for the first time in their lives they want to just give their life to you. Would you give them the courage to do that even before they leave this room? That they would say yes to you, Lord, and they would, they would lay down their lives to you. Move in us, Lord. Move in the temple that you have worldwide known as the church. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.